The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org slash give. A reading from Luke chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome to Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church. My name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. It is uh, great to be with you to study this passage this morning. I was very well read, and that really excited me to dig into this together. Um, remember, Jesus just finished describing a scene of the last days, where we saw Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all of the prophets at this banquet, this feast with the Lord, and yet some had chosen to not go. They were standing outside, and now there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's this tragic scene. And it was told as both a warning and yet still an invitation to that feast. So you have this picture of all the prophets in celebration with God. And then immediately after, Luke adds this encounter that we're going to study this morning. And here we, Jesus reminds us how, how all the prophets got to that banquet. They were killed in Jerusalem. So many of them. So we see the prophets at the table, the banqueting table, then we hear how they left this earth. So think about cities for just a moment. Cities really do kind of grow to have a reputation, don't they? So what comes to mind as I name a few? Las Vegas, New York, Chicago, San Francisco. Think of internationally like Berlin, Amsterdam, Beijing. What's coming to your mind? Maybe it's an event, it's a person from there, it's something that happened there, it's a subculture that's identified with this place. How about this one? Athens. Some of you just thought of the birthplace or the cradle of Western civilization and birthplace of philosophy. Others started barking like a dog. I love that contrast. As I named these, you thought of all different things, of something related to these places, but Jerusalem which literally means the city of peace, 
had come to have this reputation. It was known for killing the prophets of God, stoning the ones who came to care for it. So much like the parable Jesus tells of the vineyard owner who sends his servants to those who rent the vineyard and they beat the servants and they send them back. And then the owner says, well, then I'll send my son. Surely they'll listen to my son. And Jesus says, no. They said, if we kill the son, we'll be rid of this owner forever. Jesus says he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to the vineyard where the prophets are killed and prophecies are fulfilled. So let me pray and we're going to look at this passage together. Father, I do pray that this picture into your son's life and there is deep compassion revealed in it this morning. And I pray that compassion would actually warm and soften even the hardest heart this morning, even mine. Would you help us see the love that is behind this lament that drives Jesus toward Jerusalem where he knows he will face death. We ask for your spirit that we would see you as you really are and we would love you as you ought. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. So going all the way back to the birth story in Matthew chapter two, where Herod the Great sought to end the life of Jesus before he was even two years old, you see incredible opposition to Jesus. Remember the first sermon that Luke records, uh, Jesus goes to his hometown, chapter four, and it says afterwards, they were filled with rage. They dragged him to the brow and attempted to throw him off the cliff. I've had some rough sermons here. <laughs> I, and it's, there's times afterwards I'm like, Lord, I wonder if you'll ask me to do that again. But I can't imagine you standing up saying, take him to the overlook and coming back next week. And yet Jesus was so resolute, so faithful. He's fixed in his mission and what he came to do. Throughout the gospels, he's opposed at his hometown. He's opposed by Pharisees, Sadducees, the scribes, and now Herod Antipas. And in this passage, we're gonna hear Jesus' response to all of this opposition. You're gonna hear from his heart kind of what drives him. It's gonna reveal some things. So we're gonna look at it in three parts. We'll look at this united opposition. And well, his response is going to show us how, why and how he stands so resolute in the face of it. You're going to see his fixed mission and his deep anguish for his people. So first, let's look at the united opposition to Jesus, verse 31. It says, at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. So it says, some Pharisees. Now up to this point, there, there really haven't been many moments where the Pharisees were seeking to help Jesus out, uh, to really be on his side in this ministry. It is possible, even likely, that there were some who were listening, some who were sympathetic, some who didn't want to be caught up in murder. But this warning seems a bit too convenient. And there's a few things that suggest that this is, this is not really a sincere warning coming from the Pharisees. First, we know from Mark chapter three, remember Jesus healed the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. And it says, after that, the Pharisees went out, they began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So this is, this is a, a result of that plotting. And remember the, the Pharisees and Herodians were not friends. 
They were sworn enemies, but as the ancient proverb goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So now they're working together, they're beginning to unite. So I feel like the cover of acting like they are on the same team with Jesus and trying to protect him from Herod starts to fall apart when we know that they've already been colluding with Herod against Jesus. But also Jesus' response to them suggests that he knows this because he tells them, go back to Herod with this reply, with this response. So they're currently in an area of, Je- of Galilee and Perea where Herod's the ruler. Uh, they're under his jurisdiction in this land. And Herod recently had just made a foolish vow that resulted in him killing John the Baptist. So he probably does not see it in his best interest to have another murder of a prophet in the territory that he occupies. But if Jesus is to flee into Judea and Jerusalem, he would actually come under the jurisdiction of the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees. And they can actually begin to deal with him according to their law and their plan. So just as they had done with many prophets before. So Jesus' reply suggests that he understands that as well. It helps actually provide the context for what he says, the lament that he adds about Jerusalem at the end of his reply. Also remember how so far through Luke, what have the Pharisees been doing? Every time they interact with Jesus, they're trying to trap him in a matter of the law. They're trying to trick him into saying something that will enable them to convict him in a court of law and be done with him. So everything they've done to this point is about driving him towards Jerusalem where they can trap him in a matter of the law and deal with him. They'll finally have power to do something about him. So this veiled death threat suggests that the enemies of Christ are now united in opposition to Jesus and they're trying to drive him into Jerusalem. Alistair Begg points out something I find deeply encouraging hidden in these passages. He says the Pharisees despise Jesus They're plotting all kinds of ways to bring about his death. And yet Jesus still doesn't write them off. In fact, he continues to speak with them. If you look at this, the very next passage, if you have your Bible before you, in chapter 14, verse 1, the very next thing Jesus does is go to dine in the Pharisee's home. How do you feel when someone rejects you? You ever been despised? Rejected? How does that feel? Are you quick to return and give them another chance, another opportunity to do that again? What about an entire group of people? Have you ever been rejected by an entire group of people? It'd be so easy to say, I'm done with them. I'm I'm not going back there again. I'm cutting them out of my life altogether. I'm washing my hands of them. If If I never see another one of them again, it will be way too soon. I'm not signing up for that. I'm moving on. Isn't that so easy to do when we've been mistreated, rejected, even despised? Remember who it is that later goes and asks Pilate for the body of Jesus. It's Joseph of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, the Sanhedrin. Means Joseph was probably sitting at one of these dinner tables along the way. He saw something completely different in Jesus. Instead of a threat to his power, he saw a man who truly was about healing the hurting and destroying evil. Jesus is always looking for the Josephs. Even though the Pharisees represent the complete rejection of Christ, he saw there are always those to reach out 
and call to himself. So I love how Beg concludes. He says, let us beware of our blanket revulsion of people. Saying things like, oh, we're not going to deal with those people anymore. We're not going to talk to those people anymore. He says, let us beware. Lest what we might regard as righteous indignation is nothing more than selfish condemnation. Yet here's Christ again and again entering their homes and inviting them to the banquet. Saying, I came for you. Well, now let's look at Jesus' response in verses 32 to 34. You can see that he's on a fixed mission. Verse 32, and he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. So the timing of Jesus always seemed a little baffling to his disciples. We see times where the disciples suggest they should stay at a place for a while and Jesus says, no, let's move on. And times they say, we should leave. And Jesus says, no, I'm gonna stay a little longer. He stops, he talks on the way to see Jairus' daughter who's dying. He waits a few days before going to see the dying Lazarus. He's at Simon and Andrew's house. Everyone gathers. They say, everyone's looking for you. They want to hear from you. He says, yeah, I think it's time to go to the next town. Because that's why I came, to preach there also, that they might hear these words. His timing is so unpredictable and different from ours, and yet it is perfect to bring about our redemption. It becomes increasingly clear that Jesus is on a fixed mission. He has a destination. He has an arrival time and a purpose that he's following. And so he says, go tell Herod that fox. Now, it's probably obvious to you that fox was not a compliment. It was similar to how we use it in that it referred to someone sneaky, someone conniving. But in this culture, it also carried a connotation of weakness and insignificance. Herod, just like Herod the Great had, is trying to subvert the divine purpose of God. And Jesus is saying, Herod has no power to stop or change God's purpose for me. All his conniving is insignificant. It has no effect on the plan that is in place. In fact, Jesus will be killed, but it has nothing to do with the will of Herod or the scheming of man. John says in chapter 10, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. But then Jesus reveals the nature of his mission here. He says, behold, I cast out demons and I perform cures. He says, tell Herod what I've been doing. I've been setting people free from evil demons and curing their diseases. There's no question about it. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, to free people from evil and the evil one. His ministry showed over and over his power over Satan, his power over evil and all the powers of hell. He is binding Satan. And Jesus' earthly ministry of healing our diseases and our physical bodies, that gives us incredible hope. That points us to the reality and the truth of heaven. When his 1 Corinthians 15 says, 
This perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. God will raise us in immortality and incorruptible splendor. He has the power over physical death and disease. And Jesus is saying, I'm here to break evil's power. I'm here to redeem the body and the soul. That's the nature of my mission. But he also says he's going to continue to do this till he's finished the work. Please see the faithfulness of Jesus here. Do you have any half-finished projects in your life? Our lives are filled with half-finished projects, books we never finished, instruments we never really learned to play, home projects we started but never got around to finishing, our workbench is filled with tools we started taking apart and never got back together, toys that were disassembled and just couldn't find it all, put it back. We love to start things, but man, we find it hard to finish them. Jesus makes it clear that what he starts, he will finish. And he uses the phrase today, tomorrow, and the third day, I finish my course. So that was a common idiomatic expression. It It used to mean a specific fixed amount of time with completion. He's saying there's work that's prepared for me to do. I will continue to do it today. There will be more tomorrow, but soon it will be finished. My work will be completed and come to an end. He was on a mission. And no one, not Herod, not the Pharisees, not even his well-meaning friends would delay, deter, or defeat him. And Jesus says, I must finish. I must. He's saying he's under what Riken calls a holy obligation. He says it was divinely necessary for him to finish. He has that Jesus had to do it because it was the desire of his own loving heart. He had to come into the world for the very purpose of saving poor sinners from the diseases of their bodies, the demons of their souls, and the depravity of their sinful hearts. He was bound to his work by his love for you. But he also had to finish because it was the Father's will. Jesus says over and over, I've come to do the Father's will. It's my food. It's what sustains me. It's what keeps me going is to complete the work my Father has given me. And so Jesus will finish his earthly mission of healing diseases, casting out demons. He will fully and perfectly keep the law of God in his life. He will fully face the death and penalty that all of us deserve. He will suffer the punishment for every one of our sins until it is done. And when it was accomplished, he cried out, it is finished. Praise God that he finished his mission for us. And think what an encouragement that is for us now. Paul tells us in Philippians 1.6, he says, with confidence that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. What God has started in you, he will be faithful to complete. Do you ever wonder about God's timing? Do you ever feel unfinished? Do you ever feel like this big sanctification project gone awry? God is faithful. There will be no doubt on that day when we say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He has a plan and a purpose. He is resolute and it will end with you at the great banquet, redeemed body, 
redeemed soul. Listen to what Paul says in Romans about that day. He says, the sufferings of this present time will not be worthy to be compared to the glory revealed in you on that day. God is faithful. He is working even now. His faithfulness to complete the work of redemption for you is the foundation that we stand on to trust that he will complete his work in us even now. To trust in that promise. So we've looked at the united opposition to Jesus, the fixed mission of Jesus. But this passage ends by showing us the deep anguish of Jesus. Verse 33 says, Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So we saw that what compelled Jesus to finish his work and his mission was his love, his divine character. And that compassion comes through so clearly here. He doesn't just finish his work. He does it with all of his heart. Look first at the repetition of Jerusalem, Jerusalem. We go back to the Old Testament. Remember David? He cried out, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. We see Jesus used the same a repetition a few other times communicating deep love deep care he says Martha Martha and Simon Simon Satan has asked to sift you like wheat he says Saul Saul why are you persecuting me and here Jerusalem Jerusalem you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you Jesus heart is broken as he sees the people of God who have rejected his prophets are rejecting him and he cries out in lament. How often would I have gathered your children together? Think of all the accusations thrown against Jesus. Think of all that they feared from him. He wants to take our power. He's taking our followers. He, he's replacing our authority. He's saying, I don't use power and authority to take I use it to give. I'm not looking for the stuff from you. I have something for you. I have come to bring you life and to take your sin and death. They'd probably never met someone who used power and authority for others. And they didn't understand. They've never seen power used that way. But Jesus says, my desire has always been to gather you and to protect like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. The compassion in that moment is really astounding. J.C. Ryle points out that Jesus knew the rebellion of the people against God. He knew what crimes had been committed in the past. He knew what was coming on himself at the time of his crucifixion. And yet he says, how I long to gather you under my protection. If Jesus had compassion for those who killed the prophets, then he has compassion for me. And he has compassion for you. So there's a Greek verb, it's used three times in this passage. And it's the verb for desire, to want, to wish for. The first time it's used, it describes what Herod wants. 
Herod wants to kill. Herod wants your death. The second time it's used to describe what Jesus wants. He desires to protect. He desires to care, to gather you. But the third time, it's used to describe what the people want. Or really what what they don't want. They don't want Christ. They are not willing. He says, you didn't want it. So I have to ask us, what do you want? What do you desire? What do you spend your waking hours or sleepless nights wishing for? Looking to for happiness? We do live in a time that says, follow your desires. Obey them at all costs and throw everything at them to satisfy them and you will find happiness there. And then the psychologists and sociologists turn and say, we are the loneliest and most anxious generation ever. And it's confusing. Thoreau said, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. Observing that most people live an empty life from unfulfilling work, lack of leisure time, misplaced values and money, possessions, accolades. But now the culture just says, just follow your desperation. Just follow it and chase it. Where are you this morning? I invite you to hear the call of Christ to you. The one filled with compassion, the one whose desire is for your good. He says in Matthew 11, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Our Lord Jesus invites you to the banquet. He finished his work so that he can freely offer it to you. Let's pray. Lord, we do love you. We thank you this morning for the finished work of Christ. We thank you that we are not doomed to lead lives of quiet desperation. I thank you for your faithfulness, for your love and your patience as you endured the cross, scorning its shame, so that you might win us to yourself. And we thank you for your invitation to the great banquet. May there not be one unwilling heart here this morning that would refuse your gift. We ask in Christ's precious name, amen.